0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and in this last week of the year between Christmas and New Year, as the year comes to a close, we're looking back on Background Briefing's coverage of the major stories and issues of the year 2021. And nothing could be more important or significant than the possibility that American democracy could come to an end and that a one-party neo-fascist state headed by a disgraced and demented con man could spell the end of 240 years of rule of the people, by the people, and for the people. On September the 5th 2021, we spoke about the growth of plutocratic populism with Jan Werner Muller, a professor of politics at Princeton University, He's the author of What is Populism? Contesting Democracy, Political Ideas in 20th Century Europe. And his latest book is Democracy Rules. And he has an article in the New Statesman Beyond the Culture Wars, Why Democracies Across the Globe Are in Crisis. We investigated the global growth of plutocratic populism in which working class voters voted against their own interest in supporting Brexit in the UK and Trump in the United States. Then on the October twenty-fifth, 2021 broadcast of background briefing, we examined the accumulating evidence that the January sixth coup attempt was planned at the highest level of the Trump administration with, as Trump said to his acting attorney general, his Republicans in the White House doing the rest to overturn the election. Joining us to discuss the history of insurrection in this country was Sean Wilentz the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University, whose books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dole in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We looked into his essay in the journal *Liberties* the tyranny of the minority from Calhoun to Trump and assess the possibility that we already have a virtual secession of the red states determined to hold on to white power and privilege and how the McConnell filibuster feeds the anti-government fervor skillfully exploited by the charlatan Trump who claims that he alone can set things right. Above all, it solidifies the modern Republicans' strategy to succeed where the slave power and Jim Crow segregationists ultimately failed to bend the nation permanently to the will of a fiercely determined minority. Then finally, we'll go to the broadcast of background briefing from December 8th of 2021 when we tried to understand the new GOP, the Trump Party, and its rank and file who seemed to be consumed by hate and anger following a leader who is all about himself and a party that has no policies, plans, programs, or a platform for that matter. Joining us was John Nichols, the Nation magazine's Washington correspondent, whose books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, we discussed his article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci is part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation, and another at The Nation, today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole to assess what can be done to stop the party now displaying the angry and hateful faces of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobbitt, Paul Gosar, Jim Jordan, and Matt Gates from becoming a permanent one-party tyranny of the minority in the United States led by a grifter who demands and receives cult-like loyalty to him and before we go to our first guest in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction i recently resigned from kpfk pacifics los angeles station so now background briefing is completely independent and it remains free of commercials, free of corporate underwriting, but now relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. So in these last couple of days of 2021, listeners can get a tax deduction by donating to background briefing at our non the Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruth.com media.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must fully engage in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And we wish you all a happy new year. And joining us now is Jan Werner Muller, who is a professor of politics at Princeton University. He's the author of What is Populism? Contesting Democracy, Political Ideals in 20th Century Europe, among other books. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Foreign Affairs, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books. And his latest book out recently is Democracy Rules. And he has an article at the New Statesman, Beyond the Culture Wars, Why Democracies Across the Globe Are in Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jan Berner-Muller.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us and talk about democracies across the globe are in crisis. Let's focus from for, on the United States to begin with. It seems that we're sort of sleepwalking towards the possibility of a one-party state in this country. Recently, Tucker Carlson of Fox News spent a week broadcasting from Hungary where he hung, hung out with Orbán, the elected uh, dictator, if you will, of Hungary, who has sort of created a model which the United States could follow of electoral autocracy with the massive voter suppression underway. And you mentioned in in your article in the New Statesman the role of Peter Thiel, who is financing a lot of ultra-right-wing candidates for Senate races across this country. So the combination of voter suppression and these new sort of right-wing populist politicians that seem to have captured the Republican Party. Do you think that our politics are up to this challenge? Do you think the Democratic Party recognizes this juggernaut that's about to hit them in 2022?
1: I think plenty of people are aware of the challenge what I think makes things difficult is that traditionally when we think about crisis, you know, we tend to associate that with a sort of spectacular moment going back to the original meaning of the word as a kind of life or death moment. And arguably January 6, 2021, you know, was a spectacular moment and it was a decisive, decisive uh, point in time when it could have gone this way or it could have gone the other way. But what's in a sense new about the, 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 the rise of a particular kind of autocracy in our day is indeed what some of our colleagues have called autocratic legalism. So it doesn't happen just in one moment. It's not about, you know, tanks coming out and then somebody declares democracy to be over. But it's very slow, very subtle legal changes that you know have led to situations as in hungary as in turkey as in a number of other countries where there was never that sort of obvious tipping point so that is in a sense a more significant challenge because it requires constant attention it requires an ability to understand how what sometimes can look like quite harmless legal challenges actually when seen in context do amount to a gradual erosion. I mean, erosion maybe is even the wrong word because that suggests a sort of quasi natural process. No, it's a sort of conscious disabling of democratic processes. So I think we are aware of this by now. It's not like, oh, nobody has heard about voter suppression or election subversion, but it does require an enormous amount of energy to kind of keep up with everything. And I think the one thing that nobody has quite solved yet is what do you do in a two-party system when one party essentially has given up on really gaining proper majorities, has sort of committed to, for lack of a better term, a sort of counter-majoritarian position and, less obviously, As, for instance, the media critic Jay Rosen has pointed out, because they've committed to a certain kind of counter majoritarian position, they're also, in a sense, invested in a counterfactual approach to the world in general. So it's not an accident that, you know, there's so many connections between the Republican Party and people who will simply lie about um, basic aspects of our world today. Obviously, you know, it's legitimate to have different views about what you should do about certain policy challenges. Uh, that's completely OK. But if we no longer have even the most basic factual common ground, it's very difficult to say that we can, you know, do democratic conflict the way it should be. It should be carried out. So it's a long winded answer to say, yes, I think, you know, it's, it's not game over by any by any by any by any, uh, by any means. But the challenges really are new and in certain ways more difficult than what democracies in general, but also the U.S. in particular, have faced in the past.
0: Well, you're implying here, Jan Werner, that um, Rupert Murdoch is playing a massive role in this situation. But is there also a problem in the left's sort of thinking that somehow there's always been an assumption on the left that when working people get screwed, they rise up and demand better pay and conditions? And something quite different is happening here the Republican Party is now, as one of its leaders said the other day, is now the party of blue-collar Americans. It's a party of blue-collar Americans, but it's largely controlled by plutocrats. So that's a kind of paradox in itself, that working people could be captured by the very people who are exploiting them. Now, I guess you could argue there are some historical precedents. After all, The Nazis call themselves national socialists. And when you talk about Murdoch, it's hard not to see the historical analogies with Goebbels. So is there a problem that we have on the left that we're sort of lulled into thinking that somehow, because the working class is getting screwed, as we've seen the massive growth in income inequality, particularly during this uh, pandemic where billionaires have gotten richer than ever, that the assumption always is that the workers will be on the side of demanding justice in the traditional ways that uh, we've seen throughout history.
1: So I would make a couple of points. One is indeed that in the United States we have seen the rise of what's, what some political pol- scientists call plutocratic populism, which basically means that you have sort of relentless culture war to distract voters from the fact that a lot of the economic policies which the Republican Party de facto uh, expounds, are actually not even popular with conservative voters at all. So again, it's driving towards the counterfactual in a certain way, because if you actually owned up to, you know, the fact that, for instance, the Trump tax cut Uh, 80% of which went to the to the upper 1% is not something that is really is really popular with any with any larger with any larger larger constituency. So yeah, that's that's a systemic problem. Beyond that, it's a systemic problem, as you also allude to, that unlike in other countries, there is a kind of self enclosed right wing media ecosphere, as some other colleagues in political science have put it, where really, people who are in this world don't even have contact with mainstream right wing outlets. So they're not going to look at, you know, the Wall Street Journal online or anything of that sort, which is a very asymmetrical situation. Of course, you can also find conspiracy theories on the left, you can find uh, wrong information, uh, misinformation, even disinformation on the left. But most people in that world eventually are going to hear from, let's say, the New York Times or the Washington Post or MSNBC for that matter, that actually no, this is crazy and this is this is off, off the table as an approach to what's what's actually what's actually happening. So this asymmetry, in a sense, partly enables the the perpetuation of plutocratic populism. It's a it's a structural problem. Um, it has nothing to do with the rise of social media, contrary to what people sometimes say. You know, who like to blame technology as such. As number of studies have shown very coherently, the reason we ended up with this highly asymmetric, asymmetric situation and this sort of self enclosed right wing media bubble has a lot more to do with the end of the fairness doctrine in the 1980s Uh, the way that cable was set up the way that radio was deregulated and so on so it precedes the internet largely which on the one hand is good news because you might say well you know if it was due to deregulation re-regulation might hold might hold uh, some some hope at the same time we all know that you know once certain structures are firmly in place once these structures have become very profitable for certain players it's not something that can really easily happen easily happen overnight but last thing i would add if i if i may is that, in a sense, what you also allude to—a kind of deterministic thinking that, oh, it's always clear, you know, which groups are going to go for what kind of pro- program? That, I think, is a is a problem on 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 both sides of the spectrum. It's also a problem that Democrats occasionally have sort of bought into a kind of demographic determinism, thinking that, oh yeah, as the country changes changes in its in its demographic demographic composition, it's all going to sort of go our way. And that is a fundamentally, I think, undemocratic way of thinking. The whole point of democracy is that it's a dynamic, open process where you can never take anybody for granted. By the same token, you should never declare anybody ever to be irredeemable, as Hillary Clinton infamously did in her famous or rather infamous deplorable speech. Personally, I don't think that the term deplorables... Uh, is actually such a problem. I mean, a lot of what Trump did, a lot of what some of the people who follow him did and said is deplorable. But to basically say some people are irredeemable, no matter what we say, how we engage with them, how we try to persuade them, it's totally hopeless. They're out, they should be excluded. That I think is a pretty undemocratic intuition. And that can that happens in all kinds of contexts. And you know, it's it's a matter of the Democrats taking for granted that things will go their way. But by the same token, it's a matter of Republicans not even trying to reach out to certain constituency, constituencies because they think, okay, our our policies are going to be so so unpopular, or people of a certain group identity are never going to come around to our to our point of to our point of view. And ideally in, in a democracy which is open, dynamic and so on. you try to organize new kinds of new kinds of majorities you you know you you actually profess policies with conviction as opposed to trying to distract from them. and you last thing I would, I would, I would add at the risk of sounding very pedantic, you observe basic borders of democratic conflict so you don't deny basic facts and you don't suggest, That some of our fellow citizens actually don't really belong here at all, are kind of inherently un-American, are inherently, I suspect, in the way that, alas, right-wing populists nowadays often, often do.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Jan Werner-Muller, who is a professor of politics at Princeton University and the author of What is Populism? Contesting Democracy, Political Ideals in 20th Century Europe, among other books. And his writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, Foreign Affairs, The New York Review of Books, and The London Review of Books. And his latest book out recently is Democracy Rules. And he has an article at the New Statesman, Beyond the Culture Wars, Why Democracies Across the Globe Are in Crisis. So let's broaden out to across the globe. Now, there are some serious anti-democratic players out there that are contesting democracy itself. And as it happens, Jan, I've been getting a lot of uh, spam, I guess you'd call it, from people with European-sounding names that are propagating Chinese Communist Party propaganda, basically saying, you know, look how much better the Chinese system is than ours. And that's clearly got the fingerprints of Xi Jinping on it, who it's quite clear. He's telling his people, telling the world that we have a better system and look how messy the democracies are. And of course, you have similar messages coming from Vladimir Putin, who is not simply just using this rhetorically. He's actively undermining US democracy, helped elect Trump after all in 2016. And is spreading all kinds of disinformation on a regular basis that's being picked up on both the left and the right because alienation exists in this country on both the left and the right. So let's talk about that. And, of course, Brexit, in many ways, a very small amount of financing from the FSB funneled through a British insurance magnet, Aaron Banks, ended up being the biggest donation to Brexit itself. So for very small investments in the 2016 manipulation of our elections and and the manipulation of Brexit, Putin has got disproportionate results. So, is this in addition to what we're talking about, or are these players, they're not obviously running the show, but they're having a, a serious impact, are they not, on the destruction of democracy here at home?
1: It's a serious issue, no doubt. Uh, It points to much larger structural problems to do with campaign finance. I mean, especially in the U.S., everybody can quickly point at the most egregious examples. But it's actually a global problem that in many countries where, you know, you you don't have quite so much insanity about, about how much it costs to get a seat in a parliament, a congress, and so on. You still have major inequities that tend to distort the democratic process. So just as one example... In a country where you get essentially tax relief for political donations france for instance uh, what ends up happening is that basically the poor end up subsidizing the political preferences of the rich so you have these sort of massive structural problems and then that has also made it somewhat easier for outside players to abuse these systems but i think we should be careful not to think that oh everything is more or less great And then we have external actors who, you know, mess up our democracies. Uh, We enable them in many many ways. Uh, We've left our systems vulnerable. We have histories uh, that, you know, we should, as always, examine closely in terms of how we got to this point. So if I may use the American example again i always found this a bit peculiar to suggest that okay everything was great with the republican party and then you know this this sort of pirate comes along the trump and he sort of hijacks the ship and he steers it into the waters of you know choppy crazy right wing populism and 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 worse um, if you go back at least to at, at the very least to someone like Newt Gingrich in the 90s who was trying to nationalize culture war had a very specific strategy where it was all about denying, you know, the good faith of the other side. Maybe you remember he sort of even handed out a list of words that Republicans had to use when they talked about Democrats as, you know, traitors and really, really bad stuff. So this didn't all sort of appear overnight. And it's, you know, oh, it's only because China and Russia are turning against our democracies uh, that we've ended up with some of these, some of these, some of these, uh, some of these issues. So, again, the, the, the task is huge because we are not just talking about individual players. We're not just talking about external threats, uh, which we have to defend ourselves against, but we are talking about, in many cases, homemade structural problems, which have made things a lot more more difficult.
0: So just in the last few minutes, just to sort of put a face on it, not that it's necessarily going to explain the whole issue that we're talking about here, but Peter Thiel seems to be the kind of poster boy for this idea of plutocratic populism because both he and Elon Musk come from South Africa. He still, of course, grew up in Southwest Africa and and grew up with apartheid. And he's investing heavily. Of course, he invested in Trump and was one of the few people with Trump on election night when the results came in unexpectedly. And he's financing now the Stop the Steal rallies and and the defense of the Stop the Steal people. He's also financing these far-right Senate candidates that I mentioned as well and right-wing populists like Tucker Carlson and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So that certainly explains in one person the notion of plutocratic populism. But obviously this whole movement can't be pinned on one person. But still, how is it that so few players, and I mentioned earlier Rupert Murdoch as well and his, his family, who by the looks of it actually I think have lost control of Fox News... So can we just blame a couple of players here not that they're not significant
1: well obviously it's important to to you know be able to think of individual examples as 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 you know basically signs of these larger pernicious political trends but It's it's a mistake, I think, in general to be stuck in a discourse where we mostly think about individuals or about groups. I mean, as you know, in the last couple of years, when people have talked about the crisis of democracy, either people have said, oh, basically, it's the people's own fault. You know, they're all irrational. You know, they're always sitting around waiting for the great demagogue, you know, to kind of uh, lie to them or they they're ready to, you know, go for crazy stuff like Brexit. So especially a certain type of liberal has been indulging uh, sort of, you know, talk about the people that reminds one of sort of the cliches of mass psychology in the 19th century, where you basically always already know that people are irrational and, and, and so on. And the, the other extreme of of course, has been, oh, no, it's, it's nefarious elites and, and they are the ones to blame and we should, you know, somehow take them out of the game and so on. But what what both of these perspectives, different as they are, have in common is that I think they're too fixated on either particular persons or particular groups, and they don't think enough about institutions and structures. Um, It's structures that tend to enable individual action of of various sorts. Obviously, individuals also make a difference, no doubt about that, either. But I think we're, we're not doing ourselves a favor if we talk too much about all oh, the supposed moral failings be it of the people at large or be it of particular particularly rich individuals of of some sort or 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 another um what would help us if we had you know better ideas about regulating campaign finance regulating the public sphere um the kinds of things which are not impossible it's not like you know it's not like every country just because it happens to have uh, social media now ends up with a lot of people who believe that a major political party runs, you know, a pedophilia ring underneath a pizzeria in the in the capital. So this is not like, you know, a given outcome. This has a history and it has much more to do with particular institutions. And in this case, lack of regulation, uh, weak party structures. I mean, that's another thing we could talk about that uh, not every country allows uh, what Trump essentially did, which is to transform a major political party into a personality cult, uh, therefore also disabling anything like legitimate internal dissent anything like curricular loyalty which in other countries and with other party structures and other forms of of party regulation would have stopped um, something like this at a certain point and people would have said look this is this is this is you know we of course it's totally fine to be right-wing to have certain tax policies all that is totally legitimate in a democracy um, but to to cross the lines towards you know denying basic facts the big lie etc. That's not normal and that doesn't happen in every country. So there must be something about lack of party regulation etc. That has got us gotten us to the point to the point where we are. And and just pinpointing individuals I think doesn't help. It doesn't help us to see these structural problems. Right.
0: Well, but I could add though that I don't want to beat a dead horse. But Peter Thiel, early investor in Facebook, he's very close to Mark Zuckerberg, and apparently he's one of his main influences, and he's pushed Zuckerberg to the right. And there's no doubt that Zuckerberg's platform allows this terrible sort of toxic stuff to propagate both on the left and the
1: right. No doubt. I mean, there's, there's, there was, a. I mean, um, many people have rightly pointed out that there was a sort of strange uh, synergy, to put it very mildly, between between Trump and Facebook, where you say, look, you know, it's as the more you rile people up, uh, the better it is in 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 all kinds of respects for these for these sorts of for these sorts of players. Um, but again, this is not like oh, you know, Facebook equals fascism, as some of our colleagues now put it. I think this kind of defeatism. Uh, which, as you know, is sort of just the other extreme from from what you know some of us remember hearing ten years ago, which you know was that oh Facebook and Twitter were going to deliver democratic revolutions around the world and so on. The fact that we've swung from one extreme to the other says little about you know the actual effects of technology. It says a lot about our inability to have standards for what to expect from. Uh, these new, these new media, it says a lot about our tendency to imagine some golden age when everything was better, which of course doesn't exist. It's not like, uh, you know, if you look at the 19th century and newspapers in the 19th century, for instance, uh, it was pretty bad. So, so to imagine that, you know, we are sort of uniquely now at the mercy of, of this new technology and there's nothing we can do and so on. uh, Or, you know, we have all these all powerful individuals and it's, it's basically hopeless. I think is basically is basically misguided. And as you know, some some politicians are basically talking the right talk in terms of regulation, but also in terms of breaking up some of these de facto monopolies and moving us away from this kind of fateful synergy between right-wing populism and social media that basically profit from riling up people, inciting hatred, and so on.
0: And liberals, of course, and many of them are calling for censorship in terms of Facebook, which is hardly the solution. So (laughs) a lot of blame to go around.
1: there are reasons to – I mean, that's a tricky topic, and I wish we had, you know, three more hours on this. But, I mean, we shouldn't forget that in this country at least, uh, private uh, private companies are in a position to regulate speech. So – it's you know we we don't generally say that that uh within a private company or even within universities uh you know anybody can say anything at any point and and as soon as that's not the case it's 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 censorship um but in the case of in the case of an incitement of violence for instance i mean it's pretty clear that that it's legitimate to basically say this has to this has to stop and in terms of private companies
0: of course private companies also have the right to insist that their employees are vaccinated so that's certainly got people like Ron DeSantis out there on a limb. But um, you're right, Jan Werner, we could talk for a long time. and So let's do another conversation, okay?
1: I'd be delighted to do that. Thank you for your interest in my work. And stay well.
0: And have a happy Labor Day.
1: All right, you too. Take care.
0: You too. Again, I've been speaking with Jan Werner Muller, who's a professor of politics at Princeton University and the author of What is Populism? Contesting Democracy, Political Ideals, Ideas in 20th Century Europe. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Foreign Affairs, New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books. And his latest book out recently is Democracy Rules. And he has an article, The New Statesman, Beyond the Culture Wars, Why Democracies Across the Globe Are in Crisis. We're gonna take a brief station break. We're back looking into our October the 25th, 2021 broadcast on the red state secession to create a permanent tyranny of the minority. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masterson. This is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sean Wilentz, who's the George Henry Davis, 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University. And he has taught there since 1979, and his books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974-2008. Bob Dylan in America, and Politicians and Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. And he has an essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Willence.
2: Great to be here again, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And as an historian, have we ever reached a point of such danger to our democracy that is exhibited by this comprehensive and multi-layered Republican assault on the vote itself in this country with gerrymandering, meaning they'll take the House before one vote is cast. On voting day, there'll be massive voter suppression around the country. And then after that, through a Republican-controlled state legislatures, they'll be able to count and certify the vote. And if they don't like it, they can overturn it. And then at the mm-hmm. precinct level, you've got Steve Bannon's operation underway where traditionally neutral poll workers are being harassed and resigning in droves and being replaced by Republican partisans like the the ninja crowd in uh, Arizona. This is all happening before mm-hmm. our eyes. I'm wondering whether mm-hmm. the Democrats are sleepwalking mm-hmm. into a route in 2022 and 2024, but that aside... Mm-hmm. How do you see this current situation in the light of history?
2: Well, the current situation is at once, um, well, it's the most alarming since um eighteen sixty-sixty one, since Southern secession, in terms of the, the system, systematic attack on American democracy. Um, we've seen nothing like it since then. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's, it's actually worse, worse. Because, you know, in eighteen sixty sixty one, the the Confederates, the slaveholders, when they were so infuriated at Lincoln's election that they decided they were going to have no more of it. You know, they didn't try to overturn Lincoln's election. They didn't try to pervert the the, the processes to democracy. They, they they seceded. They said, "We're out of here. We're not going to do that." Well, that's not what is going on here. What's going on here is a systematic corruption of democracy from within. All done completely under the. They found the weakest points in the Constitution they could find. They found all the weak points in American democracy, which they could uh, turn to their own perverse uses and um, are in the process of establishing, as I, as I say in this piece that you so nicely mentioned, establishing a kind of permanent tyranny of the minority, which is, you know, fundamentally at odds with what this country is all about. I think we're actually well on the way to seeing that occur, and um, I'm extremely alarmed. And I would hope that the rest of the country is extremely alarmed. Um, And I wish the Democratic Party was more extremely alarmed than they seem to be about what's going on, although I suspect they understand what's going on, that they're incapable politically or what have you of of taking a stance on it. But I think it's that serious. Yes.
0: Well, you're right that. The secessionists committed treason by repudiating the Democratic Union, but the Trump Republicans committed something akin to treason by repudiating democracy itself, and that Republicans could make that minority rule more or less permanent without dissolving the Union or amending the Constitution or assaulting the Capitol. The Republican Party will have replaced American democracy with minority despotism. And that is where we are at. And it is extraordinary, Mm -hmm. the gap between... The alarming reality and the passive nature of our political discourse in not yeah. recognizing this. Well, I uh, think
2: I, I think there are attempts to do so. I mean, I think that, for example, um, what's going on in the house, inside the house, not inside the Justice Department, but inside the House regarding January sixth, is an attempt to try and get at the nature of the um, of the threat. But, you know, it's fighting the last battle, in effect. I mean, I, I'm all for it. And I think what, what, you know, Congressman Raskin and others are doing has to be done to expose the extent to which what happened in January 6th was indeed part of this continuing process that we're seeing playing itself out. But we're well beyond that now as well. Um, we're now at the point where things have been done that uh, are unlikely to be undone. Um, which will, in effect, more than in effect, which will basically throw the election in 2022. I'm not saying, you know, it's in effect, this is an act of great projection on their part. You know, Trump is always saying that the election was rigged, the election was rigged, and all the time while he's trying to rig the election, and that's essentially what they're doing. Um, But it's more than just rigging an election. It's changing the entire system around, putting it within, in the grasp of a very tightly knit almost Bolshevik-like uh, unified party under the direction of a very small group of people who are now going to, in effect, write the rules for American democracy, or unwrite the rules of American democracy and put their people in its place. That is what's going on. And on that, I agree. I mean, I think that that, that the, the scope of this, the extent of it, is by nowhere near, uh, is nowhere nearly as uh, present in people's minds as it ought to be.
0: Well, the peculiar alliance, even though they hate each other, that you point out is is with both McConnell and Trump being yeah. really the sort of twin <laughs> disasters here. Yeah, and you you write yeah. that the current filibuster, which McConnell is all about the filibuster, of course, you say that by wrecking the legislative process, the McConnell filibuster in turn feeds the anti-government fervor skillfully exploited by the charlatan Trump, Mm -hmm. who claims that he alone can set things right. Above all, it solidifies the modern Republican strategy to succeed where the slave power and the Jim Crow segregationists ultimately failed to bend the nation permanently Mm -hmm. to the will of a fiercely determined minority. So that Mm -hmm. sort of says it all.
2: Well, it's there. I mean, there are two there are two trains running in effect. I mean, there's there's McConnell and Trump, and while they're hardly identical, um, they feed each other's purposes. Um, what's in it for McConnell is permanent Republican rule. What's in it for Trump is his own, you know, kleptocratic, um, you know, gangster-like politics. Now, you know, the fact that, that, that Trump ended up taking over the Republican Party, um, as he did in 2016, when the Republican Party could not Face the fact that it had created a base that it could no longer control, and when uh, Trump, in effect, commandeered that base, the only place for for McConnell to go, in order to sustain Republican power, was to feed Donald Trump as much as he might despise Donald Trump. Donald Trump, in effect, took the party away from him and his friends. Nevertheless, he's enough of a realist McConnell is to understand, um, you know, what 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 the situation was. He knew. That going too far, opposing Trump by too much, was going to undo his entire project. Um, From Trump's standpoint, you know, as as I said in the article, as you just quoted, the more dysfunctional the government looks, the better for him. Um, The more that it looks as if the government can't get anything done, that it's only doing things for us now, special whatever. Chaos, political chaos and impasse feed Trump. And it also helps uh, McConnell. So they have a kind of, um, you know, they, they are joined to the hip, in effect, in terms of what they want to get, you know, see, get done. Um, on the one hand, this McConnell wants to do it for his Republican donors, which, which is really what it's all about. It's all about money, And I think, in McConnell's case, and power, but money is the root of all that. And then Trump has his own, you know, grandiose ideas of what he wants to do. Um, they're joined at the hip at this point. And, um, you know, I, I don't see how you undo that. I mean, I think the idea that you were somehow going to separate the aspirations of Mitch McConnell and those of Donald Trump uh, was foolish from the start. I mean, there was this thought that perhaps in the aftermath of January 6th, you'll remember that, you know, that McConnell gave this speech in which he, you, you know, blamed the president for what happened. Well, that was for a nanosecond, which was going to pass. And, the idea of, of, trying, of, of, of trying to, you know, draw a, a wedge, drive a wedge between McConnell and Trump, I think, was, was, was foolish.
0: And as you write, McConnell understands that the public generally holds the party in power responsible for dysfunction right. in action, which has right. made him the expert practitioner of the politics of sabotage. And that began also mm-hmm. not just with Biden, but going back to Obama, on the very day of, Obama, right. of Obama's inauguration. McConnell met with Newt Gingrich mm-hmm. and others uh, to plot the downfall of the Obama okay. administration, which McConnell mm-hmm. openly stated uh, he wanted Obama to be a one-term president. And again, I'm speaking mm-hmm. with Sean Mullins, who's a George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University. His books include The Age of Reagan, A History from 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery, The Nation's Founding. And he has an essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. Could you make the argument, though, Sean, and your article takes us back to before the secession with Calhoun, but through the whole secession and up to the present, but are we in a, a current secession? Is it really underway? In the sense that it's not a break with the southern states, you know, Mm -hmm. walking out of the union, so much as the red states deciding—it's not kind of—it's unstated, but but a fact that they don't want to live with the rest of us. They don't want to live with the urban Mm -hmm. blue states. They can't deal with the rise of the minorities. They just want to seal themselves Mm -hmm. off, like Texas is doing, and essentially Mm -hmm. find ways to manipulate the situation to the point where they become the minority rule, the tyranny of the minority, and the mm-hmm. rest of us mm-hmm. are sort of, you know, second-class citizens. That seems to be yeah. underway. It's not stated. I mean, Mitt Romney, in an accidental recording, talked about the makers and takers, and I think that's the way mm-hmm. they see it. They see themselves as mm-hmm. the makers, the true Americans, the ones that have privilege, and power, which they want to hold on to, and the rest of us are mm-hmm. sort of parasites. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why um, the seceders want to secede, but it is a kind of virtual secession, and it's a virtual secession not just from the blue states. I mean, that's part of it. But what they're actually doing is seceding from American, in American government and American politics normal American government, normal American politics in order to take it over. I mean, unlike the Confederates who, who tried to establish a nation of their own, came up with their own pro-slavery version of the American Constitution, thought that they could set themselves up that way, and, you know, um, they came bloody close to doing it. But never mind about that. In this case, it's different. It's not about separating. It's about, in effect, seceding spiritually, seceding virtually. In other words, they have no respect whatsoever for the, um, um, the processes, the normal processes of American government, except insofar as they can take them over. And they're going to do so legitimately. They have no spiritual connection to us. They have no spiritual connection to the way that the government's supposed to operate. They're only going to be satisfied when they can take those institutions over, which they can do at the state level, and then basically have a minority, have their have their confederacy, if you will, except they don't have to separate. They can basically have the confederacy become the country. The United States becomes the confederacy, if you will, because they're running everything. Before the Civil War, you know, for the better part of a decade, decade and a half at least, um, you know, Southern slaveholders were in command of the federal government for all types of purposes, you know, going right up to the courts and the Red Scott decision and so forth. They had every reason to believe that as long as they were there, as long as they had power, they could hold, as a minority, a small minority, they could hold the balance of power. But then, lo and behold, along comes Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, and they can't do that anymore. Well, what I think that the, the Trumpites and the Republicans are trying to do is establish what the uh, slaveholders thought that they had in the 1850s, that they don't have to um, change anything. They'll just be in control. I think they're trying to not just achieve that. I think they're trying to institutionalize that so that there will be no undoing of this minority rule. That's what I think is going on. But the secession is certainly there in the sense that they are, you know, you know withdrawing their allegiance to the American government as, as opposed to their allegiance to Trump. And here's where Trump becomes an important character in all of this, of course, because there's a cult-like character in all of this. So anything Trump says is right. Everything that everyone else says is wrong. And in that sense, the secession has led to the creation of this new nation, if you will, Um, spiritually or virtually, that is behind Donald Trump. And that's something that the Republican Party couldn't do on its own, but that Trump has managed to help them do for themselves.
0: So tell us a little about Calhoun and nullification and and how that relates to the current situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, back in the 1830s, um, it became clear to, to many or at least many slaveholders thought <clears throat> that um, the federal government was, you know, not on their side. They were going to have to do everything they could to prevent the federal government from interfering with the institution of slavery. And uh, they came up with various issues around which they were going to circumscribe federal power in order to make sure that they as a minority would have the ultimate say over the institution of slavery, but but other issues as well. In other words, they were trying to establish a kind of minority rule. Calhoun was in many ways, I mean, he's overrated, I think, intellectually, in my view, but nevertheless, he was the presiding genius of all of this stuff to try to find ways to make sure that the Southern slaveocracy was going to maintain power even though it was in a minority. One solution was the idea of nullification, that the, um, the, 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 the Southern states, the individual states, could declare any federal law null and void within their borders, right? So if you passed a tariff, for example, that they didn't like, they would be able to nullify that tariff. Um, that was one way to ensure that the federal government's, you know, um, um, power would be broken as far as the states were concerned. That they would be, as a minority, they would still be in power. That didn't work out so well, in part because President Andrew Jackson told Calhoun, "Sorry, uh, this is—we have a government here, not a league of states, and um, this is unconstitutional, and we're going to crush you." And in fact, they made Calhoun back off. But Calhoun kept coming up with other ways to try to invent, you know, a, a kind of alternative constitutional order that would ensure that this, the, 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 the southern slaveholders, even though a minority, would always have enough power to sustain themselves um, and indeed run the country if need be. And he came up with all kinds of crazy ideas, like having, you know, two presidents, one president from the north and one president from the south. All of these sort of cockamamie ideas got kind of nowhere. They managed to hang on, however, for a variety of reasons until the Republican Party came along. But what you see in Calhoun, though, is, as I say, this this concerted effort to try and defy the majoritarian basics of the American Constitution, which is indeed based on the idea that the national majority is sovereign in affairs that are national, right, and and, that the national majority rules. He was trying to undo that as best he could, and he tried and he tried and he tried. And he failed. But in the end, in that failure, the Confederacy formed to say, "Okay, well, we can't do it our way. We're going to do it this way. We're going to secede." That's where we get to the Civil War. But my point in the piece is only that this idea of the tyranny of the minority, the idea of minority rule, it's nothing new. It's nothing that Mitch McConnell invented, nothing that Donald Trump invented. It's a it's a theme in our history that goes all the way back. In some ways, it goes all the way back to the founding in 1787. but it really goes back to Calhoun. And uh, there's a kind of continuum in all of this.
0: Well, but you write here, talking about a continuum, in 1995, for example, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a dissenting opinion, appeared to endorse, if not, if not nullification, then the compact theory on which nullification rests, writing with breathtaking candor that, quote, the ultimate source of the Constitution's authority is the consent of the people of each individual state, not the consent of the undifferentiated people of the nation as a whole. And that's Clarence Thomas, who incidentally is a black man, and he is now, according to some analysts, really running the Supreme Court, not Justice Roberts, because... He, along with Alito, uh, in compact with the uh, the Trump appointees who have tipped the, the mm-hmm, scales mm-hmm. now to the point of a 6-3 mm-hmm. conservative majority. So just in closing, though, Sean, is there a problem? We, we've talked about it earlier in the fact that the Democrats don't see this freight train barreling down the tracks at them um, mm-hmm. of voter suppression and one-party rule. The table is now being set for one party rule in the United States. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's no reason to assume that once they, the Republicans take over, they're going to give up power, their majority power. But mm-hmm. is there a problem in the sense that liberals have always defended minority rights and that's now being mm-hmm. turned on its head where the majority mm-hmm. is now under threat?
2: Yeah. I mean, liberals are raised on the idea that, you know, that their entire... Um, um, you know, devotion ought to be to protect those who are weak, protect those who are, who are minorities. That's their primary focus. Um, but there comes a point where the minority is actually the people who oppress those minorities. As it were. They are uh, threatening to take over the uh, majoritarian rule. Uh, look, the cornerstone of any, const- any American democratic order is the idea of majority rule. Now, you have checks on that majority rule to ensure that minorities are not oppressed. That's what James Madison stood for. But there comes time. There, there, there are times that come when, in fact, um, you know, these minority interests want to take over the entire country and, or take over the, the you know, the majority power there, to include the possibility of majoritarian rule. Right? It's not a check on minor, majority power. It's the rejection of majority power. It's the rejection of the entire idea of majoritarian government. That's what's going on here. So it's not a check. It's a. Um, it's an obliteration. And unless the Democrats wake up to that, then our entire constitutional order is endangered. It's really that serious.
0: Well, Sean Mullins, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to be here Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, Bob Dylan in America, The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. And he has an essay in the journal, Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. we we'll are back with the December 8th, 2021 Broadcaster Background Briefing when we try to understand the hate and anger-filled Trump Party with no policies, plans, or platform. It's coming from
3: the field that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder, from the sirens Ashes of the gay. is coming.
0: To the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available twenty-four-seven at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready: The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a citizen Democracy and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci as part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation, and another at The Nation, Today's GOP Would Excommunicate Bob Dole. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols.
4: It's great to be with you, my friend.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and I'm trying to figure out here what's happening to the country and to the GOP. (laughs) We know the GOP is controlled by Donald Trump, and that's bad enough in itself. But it seems to be fueled by hatred and anger, and they don't have any policies. They don't have any programs. They're not a a political party in that traditional sense. They're just this sort of angry mob who seems to get thrills out of trolling liberals and owning the libs. And that seems to be the, that seems what they thrive on. And it's the party now who projects the faces of a crazy QAnon woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and another one, Lauren Bobbitt, and a Paul Gosar and Matt Gates. These are the face of the GOP today. And I guess the thing that fi- I find even more alarming is if through voter suppression, they're likely to come back, win in 2022 and win in 2024, and we'll have a one party state run by hateful, gun toting people who are just angry and inchoate and have nothing constructive or positive to say or do. And God help us.
4: Well, apart from that, how are things going?
0: <laughs> Mrs. Um, Lincoln, right.
4: <laughs> how was the play? Um, Look, it, this is a pretty rough, this is a pretty rough period in our history, and it's a fascinating thing, because if we step back from it and recognize, you know, sort of the reality of our circumstances, a very, very wealthy country. Um, it's struggled through COVID because of the incredible handling of it by Donald Trump, but but, you know, is has survived somewhat well. Um. We have an economy that appears to be booming, at least to some extent, especially for the very, very wealthy. Uh, But in general, unemployment is down and you can use a whole bunch of other measures that um, should tell us that we, you know, we ought to be debating how to get things right, how to how to repair the things that aren't working, how to progress. And instead, we are sort of locked in this, you know, backward spiral uh, and. Uh, It is clearly because the Republicans are very, very good at controlling the narrative. Uh, They're so much better at it than the Democrats that at this point, um, you know, pretty much everybody's down, everybody's depressed. There's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, a sense of almost hopelessness, which uh, the, the realities around us shouldn't be leading us to. But that's where we've ended up. So what do we do with that? How do we how do we deal with it? Well, the first thing is that we call it out for what it is. And the truth of the matter is that at this point, the Republican Party is an authoritarian party. They are want to guide us toward a point where they have power, something, you know, not maybe not absolute power, but something that is is far greater than what you would gain through a fair and free election. They want. They want to have a dominance of our society, a dominance of our lives. And uh, they're willing to to seek it pretty much at any cost, at any end. Uh, What's fascinating to me is that there is no real set of principles. There's no real set of ideals that they're they're built around. It is merely opposition to uh, the Democrats being in power. It's anger at the fact that uh, that they don't sit in the White House, that they don't have control of the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate and and other other parts of the political infrastructure of this country. And the reason we should fear that, the reason we should be concerned about it is that they've, despite their absurdity, despite their extreme nature, they've done pretty well. Um, They Trump got over 70 million votes, uh, 74 million votes in the last election they're very close to control of the house they're very close to control of the senate in fact they're they're in an even split in the senate and so we look toward 2022 and we have this you know kind of jarring prospect that they might return to congressional control and then in 2024 to come back to you know full control congress and the presidency that's what democrats and progressives should be focused on right now they should be focused on creating the infrastructure that makes sure that doesn't happen and shoring it up. Unfortunately they're not. And I get and I think if we, you know, to round this all out, to say if there's a reason why I think an awfully lot of people are feeling overwhelmed and feeling down, people of good good intentions and good spirit, it is because the Democrats don't seem to be willing to fight this thing. If they were willing to fight this thing in, they would say, look, we're gonna do build back better, we're gonna do these other issues. But right now, we're pulling the brake on everything, and we're looking at what's happening in the states. We're looking at you know, what's, what's happening in general, and we are going to focus for the rest of this year on passing the For the People Act, passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, passing the legislation that Amy Klobuchar and others have developed to ensure that, that Republicans don't deconstruct the demo, small-D democratic infrastructure of this country. And the Democrats don't seem to be prepared to do that. And it's 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 astounding to me. It is, you know, how people have must have felt in other countries when they watch slow motion coups playing out. Um, if the Democrats do not get their act together and pass democracy legislation now, it's an immediate and urgent initiative, then we really are looking at the prospect that uh, Republicans could game this system in ways that might restore them to power.
0: Well, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and caught everybody by surprise. True. It's not inconceivable that we could have a collapse of this country, and of its democracy, in the same kind of surprising way, because the groundwork is being laid at the moment. And when you talk about a party, the GOP, that has no policies, plans, or programs... But it's just propagating hate and anger. I think one of the reasons, perhaps, why they don't state what their main program is, that they don't want to. At the same time, they're being successfully in in the sense that they're seceding from the union in, in the way that the Confederacy failed. In the way, if you look at the states of Florida and, and Texas in particular, and other red states, it's pretty clear that what they're saying to the rest of us is, we don't want to live with you people. We don't want to live with you liberals and progressives and you minorities. And I think that they're in the process of building a tyranny of the minority because they've got the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College on their side built in, and if they can gerrymander and suppress the vote and rig the vote to the extent that they're doing now, then you will have a tyranny of the minority. And, of course, you've got the Supreme Court backing them up. I think that's their program. I think they are literally in the process of seceding from the Union and making us second-class citizens.
4: Yeah, the only, I I might uh, challenge your language slightly, Uh, not your concept, and that is the notion of them seceding. I think what they figured out is that when they seceded in the 1860s, that didn't really work out for them all that well. Um, Although, they, they sort of won some of the battles of history for a very long time. Um, and, and so now I think what they really want is what you're describing there, tyranny of the minority um, within, you know, the, the current map of the United States. They, they're kind of willing to live with us as long as they tell us what to do and as long as they, they dominate everything. And that, you know, you see that in a, a case of a state like Texas a very diverse state, um, you know, and a relatively closely divided state politically. And yet the uh, Republicans in the legislature in Texas are passing incredibly radical pieces of legislation. And so you ask yourself, how could that possibly uh, succeed politically? How do you how do you get away with a situation where you're doing incredibly unpopular and dangerous things, and when you're governing incompetently, literally to the point where the grid goes down in the winter, um, you know, when you seem to be doing everything wrong, uh, how can you how would you why would you pursue that? Why would you as a political party um, you know, follow that path? Well, the answer is that uh, they believe they can deconstruct democracy sufficiently so that while we will have the facade of elections, um, you know, we'll, we'll have elections. But we we won't have the reality of a of a real contest, and we've got that in the Senate right now, where you know a, a handful of states effectively have veto power over the rest of the country because very low population states. But there's the two seat rule gives them when you add it up an ability to uh, as long as the filibuster exists uh, to block you know most legislation. Uh, then we see that with gerrymandering in the House of Representatives. We see it with uh, really aggressive voter suppression initiatives being enacted across the country. Uh, and this is everything from voter ID to just making it hard to vote on certain days and hard to do an absentee ballot, things like that. And then finally, Ian, uh, one of the things I've been tracking a lot recently across the country are these initiatives by Republicans in the States to literally overturn the rules, the structures, the policies, of the existing election structures. This would be the state elections boards, even the operations of secretaries of state. And you know, the, the end goal of this is a situation where it's incredibly hard to vote if you don't happen to be someone who's inclined to vote on the Republican side. And uh, if by chance the uh, progressive forces do win, uh, it's incredibly easy to challenge and overturn election mm-hmm. results. No matter how you measure that, that's a recipe for uh, disaster from a small-D democratic standpoint. But it is uh, certainly a, a fine recipe for gaining control if you are a very determined minority that operates pretty much as a cult.
0: Well, it's happening in the state of Wisconsin, your state. Yes, it, it is. And
4: we do have a democratic
0: governor, but they want to get rid of the the bipartisan election system that they have now that works fairly and replace it with one completely controlled by Republicans.
4: That's right. We have a state elections board that, you know, it it does, it's, it's very bureaucratic. It, it, you know, it decides, you know, like how to structure elections, how to, you know, do the times and uh, for when people vote, you know, how to, you know, arrange absentee ballots, you just kind of run down all the stuff. It's a bipartisan board made up of Republicans and Democrats. And while they don't always get along on everything, they, you know, they do his, have historically done pretty good at, at you know, organizing elections um, and and also then counting the ballots and providing the results. Uh, what Ron Johnson, the senior senator from Wisconsin, has argued and proposed is that the Republicans in the legislature simply supersede the state board of elections and start dictating their own rules uh for how elections are conducted and how votes are counted and results are are announced and if johnson gets his way as somebody who's very likely to be running for re-election next year um i don't see how even the the most uh naive person wouldn't imagine that that is a, a strategy for gaining an upper hand not via the will of the people but via a gaming and and uh, manipulating of the infrastructure of elections, that's that's what we're seeing in Wisconsin. We've seen a proposal down in Texas that lowers the standard for standard for challenging an election result, uh, which you know it were were that the Texas rule that they've they've developed uh, to be national and were to have been on the books in states across the country in 2020 would have made it dramatically easier. For Donald Trump to overturn election results, um, and then we go back to January 6th, you know, and so you—that's what January 6th was about. It's—it's it's not often talked about, you know, in, in the way that it should be. We should always understand that January 6th was an attempt uh, to prevent the certification of election results that did not favor the Republicans, and a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives actually voted for that. After the insurrection, they came back in and supported efforts to reject election results. 147 and so, of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, how do you, you know, how do we look away from this and not recognize the reality that's staring us in our face? We have a political party that is absolutely determined to get power. They don't seem to have much reason, some a set of principles that they're running on or anything like that. They want the power. And they're so determined to get it that anyone who even deviates slightly from their program uh, is is punished. And so, you know, a couple weeks ago, the Wyoming State Central Committee of the Republican Party excommunicated Liz Cheney. Now, Liz Cheney is 100 percent conservative. She's an absolute right wing, atrocious authoritarian on a lot of stuff. Uh, and I mean, authoritarian, not like in some of the ways we're talking about here, but in, you know, a lot of her vision is, you know, how you move around the world in a neocon manner and things of that nature. And yet, you know, she had a little bit of qualm, a little bit of discomfort with the idea of actually overturning elections. And she thought that Donald Trump and his minions should be held to account for what happened on January 6th. For that, she was thrown out of her leadership position in the House. Uh, Now she's been excommunicated by her state party. And, and so, You know, you tell me when somebody who's like 99 and 9% of the time with you, but that unacceptable because they don't follow the dear leader, um, you know, how is that different from a cult?
0: And again, we're continuing the conversation here with John Nichols, who is The Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy, and A Citizenless Democracy. And his most recent book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci is part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation, and another at The Nation. Today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole. Now, you mentioned earlier, John, your puzzlement at why the Democrats aren't making these voting rights bills, the John Lewis bill, and the one that actually Joe Manchin put for in the Senate, which Stacey Abrams approves of, why they're not making that their number one priority. And I don't know, is it a problem with Biden himself that he somehow, because of his long career in the Senate, that he doesn't recognize that today's GOP has nothing to do with the collegiate days when he was in the Senate, that these are different creatures today. These, are, This is the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt and all these trolling, grandstanding people like the guy that rolls up his sleeves and turned a blind eye to the wrestling coaches. Predatory behaviour on young boys uh, in the wrestling team. Jim Jordan, that character. Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, who, who actually put out cartoons of him killing Biden and AOC. Now they're stripping them of or Some of them been stripped of their House committee seats, which the Republicans are furious about. They're now, there's now an effort underway to strip uh, Bobbitt. She put out a a Christmas card following Congressman Massey from Kentucky who showed a card of himself with his entire family toting uh, machine guns. Massey himself, by the way, I called up a former senior executive in the ATF, the Alcohol and Tobacco Firearms. I asked him, I said, how come Congressman Massey's holding an M60 heavy machine gun? And his, his daughter next to him has an Uzi and his wife has a uh, Thompson submachine machine gun. I thought they were banned. <laughs> the, the ATF guy said, no, you can like, literally get a license in this country to have machine guns. So what are these people toting guns? What are they so afraid of? The rules, the laws are all in their favor. You can have an arsenal, but you don't have an enemy except your fellow Americans. What the hell is going on?
4: Well, you started with Biden there. I, I went off uh, and, on a tangent. I, sorry, yeah, I'm on a did. bit of a
0: rant here. So.
4: It's, uh, I, and I, uh, I, I was able to keep up. And so I'm going to take us back to Biden. And I will say that you had it spot on with as regards Joe Biden. He was 36 years in the United States Senate, eight years as vice president of the United States, which is president of the Senate. Uh, effectively, you know, somebody who's, who spent more than half of his very long life uh, as a member of a club and a club that operated with a certain set of rules uh, and, and, and actually was you know, remarkably uh, cohesive, didn't necessarily mean they did the right thing, didn't necessarily mean they they uh, moved in a in a proper direction. always, But they did tend to move together. And, um, you know, we just look at that with the passing of Bob Dole. Bob Dole was a, an extreme conservative. You know, very, very right-wing guy. And yet, um, you know, he was able to work with Ted Kennedy to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. He worked with Kennedy also to extend the Voting Rights Act in 1982. Actually, very, very meaningful and important extension there. And frankly, a lot of other issues where there was a, a, a high level of cooperation, um, still remembering an extreme conservative. And, and uh, yet today, I mean, can you imagine that somebody who had worked with Ted Kennedy to expand civil rights and voting rights and and do the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, would be even considered to be a Republican nominee for for not just president, but for dog catcher. No, it wouldn't happen. Um, And it's because at this point, the Republican Party has rejected that sort of cooperation, yet Biden still thinks that that somehow you know, you can appeal to their better angels. And and he even, you know, thinks it of Joe Manchin as well. And so you end up with a situation where Joe Biden, I I think a reasonably honorable man and a a reasonably decent guy in a lot of ways, is just the wrong person at the wrong time. He's fighting a battle by a a different set of, of rules of engagement. And his set of rules of engagement are not sufficient to the moment that we're in. Uh, If Biden and Schumer and other Democratic leaders don't recognize the urgent need to shore up American democracy at this point to make sure that you can deal with gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn elections. If we don't shore it up now uh, and we let the 2022 elections go forward uh, on the pattern that they're setting up on with gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn, etc., I I think we are doing two things. Number one, effectively guaranteeing that the Republicans will prevail. And number two, setting up a situation where it's going to be very, very hard to imagine how Donald Trump doesn't have at least some upper hand in his all but certain 2024 presidential run.
0: Well, just the other tangent in my little rant uh, was about the Christmas cards. Now, Bobbitt has put out her own Christmas card yeah, with her yeah, entire yeah. family holding assault rifles. And But Massey from uh, Kentucky was the first to do it. And as I say, I called up a former senior person in the uh, yeah. ATF to say, how could Massey be holding an M60 machine gun? I mean, these things are available, but I've never been able to understand, John, and I've asked a lot of people in the business of what's now called gun safety as opposed to gun control, what it is psychologically in America that that you have this need to deck yourself from head to toe with camo and Kevlar and strut around holding military weapons, w- what are you afraid of?
4: Is, well, you realize can- that most Americans don't, right? vast majority of Americans don't. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's that's true, that's, but that's, then that's, why do these people? Is it is it the same mechanism that why we're talking about Bobbitt and... Taylor Green, The ones that are in your face get the
4: attention? Is that what it is? I think there's some, some element of that and, and also I do think these are people who are terrified. I think they are terrified by progress. They're terrified by the progression of the United States um, and, you know, this is the really, the sort of unsettling reality of the moment. We have a constitution written in the 18th century that imagined a a certain way of governing. It has not been sufficiently updated. It has not been evolved uh, in the ways that constitutions of almost every other country in the world have. And so we create a situation where a small minority can hold power and and hold influence for far longer than, uh, than it would logically be empowered. And now they see the reality that even with their, their very long uh, hold on, on power, uh, they're, they're threatened. They don't necessarily have a guarantee that they will continue to be dominant. They, we have a uh, more diverse population. We have young people who are you know, far more anti-racist, far more uh, questioning of capitalism, far more deeply concerned about uh, the climate. And they look at all that and they're like, whoa, this country is heading in a way that that terrifies us. And they they express their terror, you know, uh, I, I think constantly, you know, with their, you know, Christmas cards of guns and confronting people in elevators and, and you know, like ranting and raving about, you know, all these right. threats.
0: Taking over school boards, taking yeah, over yeah. election boards, intimidating people. This is thuggery. Yeah.
4: It is thuggery rooted in in a sense of complete horror and terror that this country is is in fact evolving beyond their their ability to control it and yeah and they're desperate now that that does uh that creates real concerns that's a that's a really troubling circumstance because the way to deal with that is not to neglect it and not to look away the way to deal with that is to realize that our small d democratic infrastructure is not sufficient to the moment, and so you need to take some basic steps to shore it up. Uh, I I will guarantee you that you know any enlightened founder of this country would tell you to do that. You know, you know I can I can tell you that that throughout our history we have evolved our small democratic system in ways that responded to the the progress of the nation and made sure that we didn't you know kind of get locked in the past. That's why after the Civil War we amended the Constitution to give voting rights. To those who had had only recently been enslaved, that's why in the 1920s, way too late, we gave uh, full voting rights to women. That's why, you know, a little bit later in that uh, period, we started to finally give full voting rights to the first peoples of this country, Native Americans. It's why, you know, after great struggle in the Southwest, we extended voting rights to the Latinx community. It's why in the 1950s and the 1960s, a civil rights movement emerged that had as its, you know, core Demand voting rights, and those voting rights were protected by the U.S. Congress in 1965. That's why, in the late 1960s, when young people were being sent off to Vietnam, uh, but you know, literally being asked to die for their country, but but not being allowed to vote on its policies, uh, very quickly a constitutional amendment—or I'm sorry—a set of changes were developed that produced 18 to 21 year old voting. You know, in this country, we do major changes when we need to. And we are at a point right now where we need to do some major changes. Uh, This isn't anything radical. It's not something that's going to undo the constitutional framework of the country. What we're going to do is basically shore it up in a way that that small-D democracy works and is responsive. But if Biden doesn't do that, and if Schumer and his allies don't do that, uh, then we are very much threatened with the prospect of minority governance of a country – uh, by and minority governance by people who are terrified and uh, quite, you know, angrily opposed to progress.
0: Well, just in closing, then, John, you have given us a quick history lesson here on how the real progress has been made in this country by progressives who've done the heavy lifting. They stepped up and ended the Civil War, and they they stepped the up and ended slavery and brought about women's votes and all of the all of the rights that now we take for granted they've always <clears throat> the other side the conservatives have only said just say no they've said no to everything but the heavy lifting has been done so progressives should be proud of that record but at this point i'm looking for somebody to take a stance to to hold yeah. the line because look what's just happening to to Saul Amarova who was biden's nominee for control of the currency she got the, the McCarthy treatment. It's absolutely despicable yeah. that Senator Kennedy, that good old boy from Louisiana, said, should I call you a comrade? You know, I mean, because she grew up in the Soviet Union, for God's sake. That was her crime. Probably, and,
4: came, to the, probably came to this country and, and you exactly. know, celebrated. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, you know, but it, I'm, it, I it,
0: want to add, though, that it, two yeah. Democratic senators have just scuttled her nomination, oh, Tester yeah. and Manchin.
4: Yeah. No, look, the Democrats. Well, and remember, uh, those who remember McCarthyism will, will remind you that uh, Joe McCarthy was a Republican, but many Democrats supported and sustained him in the 1950s until he finally was censured by the, by the Senate. In fact, the most courageous opponents of Joe McCarthy tended to be his fellow Republicans, people like uh, Margaret Chase Smith and, and a couple of other Republican senators. And so the the reality that we must understand is uh, that Democrats have let us down before uh, and let us down badly at critical points. Uh, and that is a good point to kind of conclude on that we have seen this incident you talk about where uh, an incredibly qualified nominee was uh, rejected, forced to uh, to stepped it back from from seeking this position uh, because of straight on McCarthyism and stuff that, frankly, uh, was as bad or worse than anything you saw under McCarthy. And you didn't see President Biden or, or really many other Democrats stand up and say what was the essential response during the McCarthy era. The attorney who said, you know, have you no decency at long last? Have you no decency? Uh, That's what should have been said, and that's, you know, we should be, you know, fighting these things, not backing down, not backing off, and not neglecting, not neglecting the reality of what what we're up against here. Because if um, we have more incidents like this, you know, where nominees are withdrawn after they've been effectively red-baited, then the Republicans won't, they, they won't claim victory. They'll see a chance to, a new opening. And that will become uh, even more central to to what they're doing. Bottom line is the Republican Party at this point in this country is a very evolutionary party. They are very creative. They are constantly looking for ways to uh, expand and extend minority rule over the vast majority of Americans. And they will do it through uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn elections, red baiting, Gamesmanship in Congress, obstruction—you know, whatever tool they've got. Uh, Democrats at this point are responding to that in a very weak, very listless way, and history will not look well on that response. History, if indeed things go bad in this country, history is going to say, well, you know, you can blame blame you know, Lauren Bulbert and people like that, or you can realize that that it was Democrats who failed to step up at a time when they were required to do so.
0: Well, John Nichols, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
4: Appreciate it. I'm glad to have this conversation.
0: And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, and his most recent, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti fascist, anti racist politics. And he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci is part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation. And another, at the nation, today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us and i'll be back again with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org bye for now took
3: the kids to the park and disappeared by